0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Bram Stober served as the director of Major Theatre in London for 27 years, and he authored over 12 novels, including a nonfiction work that was a standard for the duties of serving as a clerk. And yet, Bram Stoker is known to us almost exclusively for one thing today, writing the novel Dracula in 1879. Grant Wood was uh, good at many things. He was a decorative artist, Uh, he was a jewelry designer, he was also an illustrator and a painter, but Grant Wood is also known to most people for only one thing. This painting, American Gothic, in 1930. And even though he has an acting career that dates all the way back to the early 1980s, a lot of people know Robert Downey Jr. for only playing one role, Iron Man. Then there's Jonathan Edwards, often regarded as the most important thinker and theologian ever produced on the soil of this continent. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy identifies two main themes that run through his writings, the absolute sovereignty of God and the beauty of God's holiness, not the theme of hell. Yet many people, if they know anything about Jonathan Edwards at all, it's that he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, All these people excelled in a variety of areas, but they're known for just one thing by most people. And Jesus taught a lot of things, but it seems that many people know Jesus for only saying one thing, judge not. They know that he said you're not supposed to judge other people. And it is true that Jesus says this. He says judge not, but it's recorded in only one gospel. It's recorded in the gospel of Matthew in the section commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And what we need to see is that what Jesus is forbidding specifically with these words is the sin of judgmentalism. And so that's what I want to consider together this morning, the sin of judgmentalism as we look at Jesus' words to judge not as we find them in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And the text can be found on page 474, of those paperback Bibles. But again, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 this morning. So if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Jesus said, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measurement you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, perhaps the best place for us to start thinking about the sin of judgmentalism is with the issue of confusing the meaning of being judgmental. Confusing the meaning of being judgmental. It is common today to be accused of being judgmental if you deny someone's truth claims, or if you conclude that someone's beliefs are false, or if you regard someone's lifestyle or choices as morally wrong. If you do that, will be accused of being judgmental. And this understanding of being judgmental is likely tied to this modern insistence on tolerance, especially religious and moral tolerance, which means, at least in part, allowing people to have the freedom to hold to different religious beliefs and moral convictions without undue or unnecessary restrictions placed upon them, much less being put to death for holding such views or convictions, which has been an issue in the past. So it's a good thing that we have that kind of tolerance. But more and more, this insistence on tolerance has come to mean accepting all beliefs as equally true and all moral convictions as equally virtuous. And not just accepting them all as equal, but in some cases, even getting to the point where there's this insistence on celebrating all of these differences. And if you're unwilling or fail to do that, to accept all beliefs and all choices and all actions as equally virtuous and equally true, if you fail to do that, you're being judgmental. But clearly, this is confusing the meaning of being judgmental. I mean, first of all, if this is what it means, then we should just all be much more tolerant and stop judging people for being judgmental. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, the minute that you criticize someone for being judgmental, with this definition, you're being judgmental. But in addition to that, unless you want to argue that Nazism is as acceptable an idea as any other idea in the name of tolerance, or if you want to hold that a slave trader and an abolitionist, someone who wants to abolish the slave trade, are equally virtuous from a moral perspective in the name of tolerance. If, unless you're going to want to argue those kinds of things, we have to have a clear understanding of what it means to be judgmental. We have to have a clear understanding of that. And in addition even to that, it's important, it's actually critical for us to exercise proper judgment. That we're, It's wisdom that when you're choosing a nursery, or daycare facility for your children, or when you're choosing a school, or when you choose mechanics, or doctors, or churches, or friends, that you exercise careful, proper judgment and discretion. And that is not what Jesus is forbidding here in these words when he says, judge not. It's not what Jesus means. He's not telling us not to exercise any kind of proper, wise judgment. And we actually don't have to go outside of Matthew 7 to see that that can't be what Jesus means. Because immediately after verses 1 through 5, which we read, Jesus says this in verse 6, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Now, we shouldn't conclude here that Jesus is talking literally about dogs and hogs. He's talking about people, about whom it is proper in some way to classify as dogs and pigs, to not put before them what is holy, to not throw your pearls in front of them. But in order to classify and identify such, you have to exercise proper judgment. And then in verse 15, in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Some prophets are false, and identifying them requires judgment. Some beliefs are wrong. And so exercising proper judgment is actually a spiritual necessity. But while this problem of confusing the meaning of being judgmental is a real danger, we can't lose sight, even in asserting this, we can't lose sight of the reality that Jesus does say, judge not. He does say that. So what exactly does he mean? And how can we determine when we're guilty of committing the sin of being judgmental? Let's look at that secondly, committing the sin of being judgmental. There's a difference between exercising wise and proper judgment and judgmentalism or being a judgmental person. And maybe in the most simple ways, we can simply say that judgmentalism is adopting a negative critical spirit toward others. Judgmentalism is when we adopt a negative critical spirit toward others. Now this negative critical spirit can often be seen in the way that people act, can often be heard in the words that people use and how they use them, but not all the time. Because what we're dealing with here is a critical spirit that is operating first and foremost inwardly at the level of our hearts. It will often come out. We'll be able to see it, we'll be able to hear it in ourselves and others, but it's coming from the heart. And even if it's not coming out, it can still be residing in the heart. And it operates at least in four ways. And they're all related and can actually happen simultaneously. But I want to unpack these four ways in which we can identify this critical, negative, judgmental spirit when it's operating. We are guilty of committing the sin of being judgmental when we're judging others self-righteously with a lack of humility. Self-righteously with a lack of humility. Judgmentalism can be driven by conscious or unconscious attitudes that we're better than other people. And that can include that we're morally superior to other people. Now, you might be judging others self-righteously with a lack of humility over very superficial kinds of things. The way people talk, the accents that they have, the way that they look, the way that they dress, their weight, the color of their skin, what kind of car they drive, what kind of house they live in, what kind of job they have, how much money they make. Very superficial kinds of things, but it's not just recognizing that these differences exist. It's concluding that people are inferior as a result of these differences. It's interpreting them negatively And so it often creates dismissiveness and disgust and condemnation toward others in our hearts when we judge in this way. We can also be doctrinally judgmental as Christians, meaning that we view people inferiorly and that we have a sense of self-righteousness over our own doctrinal doctrinal convictions compared to someone else in the church. We can be doctrinally judgmental. We can be denominationally judgmental judgmental, looking down our nose at people who aren't reformed or aren't in the same denomination as we are in particular denominations. We don't believe that they hold up the scriptures. We can be denominationally judgmental. We can also be morally judgmental. And it bears repeating here that concluding that someone's beliefs are false and that someone's actions are immoral is not in itself being judgmental. But when we exercise that judgment in a spirit of critical negativity, When it's done self-righteously with a lack of humility, that's what Jesus is prohibiting here. When we do it self-righteously with a lack of humility. And one of the ways we combat that is that we need to remember that we're never, ever acceptable before God based on our own righteousness or based on our own moral performance or some kind of imagined superiority that we have over other people. We're never acceptable before God because of that. You are only ever acceptable in the presence of God through the righteousness of Christ that is yours by grace as a gift through faith. That's the only thing that ever makes you acceptable before a holy and a righteous God. And so at any time that we're judging others self-righteously with a lack of humility or with a kind of sense of superiority over others, that's sinful. And we need to confess that and we need to repent of that. C.S. Lewis offers us this wisdom. He says, whenever we find that our religious life, our spiritual life, is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. But we're also being judgmental committing the sin of being judgmental, when we're judging others quickly with a lack of information. Now, there are times that we have to render very quick judgments about the safety of someone, about whether we can trust someone with uh, particular sensitive information or whether they'll gossip that. We have to make quick determinations on that. But judgmentalism condemns others before having all the facts, and it's quick to judge others without having sufficient knowledge or understanding. And it doesn't stay open in learning more. So this kind of condemnation quickly comes out with things like this. That person is poor because they're lazy. They don't want to work. That person struggles with mental illness, like anxiety and depression, because they don't have enough faith. That person has children who are ill-behaved because they're indulgent as a parent. That person struggles with substance abuse or other kinds of addiction because they don't really want to get better so they keep slipping back into that. When we make those kinds of conclusions based on very little to no information, we have adopted a negative critical spirit toward others. That's judgmentalism. That's what Jesus is prohibiting right here. This also includes rushing to judgment after only hearing one slanted news sources version of the truth, or when we only hear one side of the story and we conclude quickly and we rush to judgment. And this kind of judgmentalism is even worse when we close ourselves off to the possibility that there even is another side of the story that needs to be heard. That's not good. Listen again to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. And then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that. Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it is the second, then it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. That second option is an indicator of relishing in a judgmental, critical spirit over others. Taking pleasure in something Jesus forbids. That's not good. That's a serious problem. But there's more. We also are guilty of committing the sin of being judgmental when we're judging others comprehensively with a lack of grace, comprehensively with no grace, meaning that we condemn others entirely, their whole person, their whole character, based on just one thing. You're black. You're Asian. You're Latino. You're white. You're a male. You're a female. You're a Republican. You're a Democrat. And so this is how you are. And that this is always negative. There's always a harsh criticism behind that. This is how you are. That's reductionistic. That's dehumanizing. And it's prejudicial. A word that means judging people before you know. Prejudicial. It's a prejudgment before you know anything. And that's what that is. That's not fair to people. Not even if that one thing is based on some kind of personal interaction. It's not even fair if you've had some kind of limited personal interaction. For example, based on just one thing, that you've concluded that someone is completely unreliable in character because they failed to respond to a time-sensitive email just once. Or when you're following somebody that you don't know in a car, and they failed to use a turn signal. At one particular stop, and you mutter something under your breath about how this person needs to go back to driving school because they don't know how to drive. Because they fail to turn their turn signal on just once. Or when you go to a restaurant for the first time, it's not a very pleasant experience, and you go home and you write a scathing review online for everybody to read. Those kinds of things aren't leaving much room for grace. They don't leave much room for grace. Because the reality is, we all have really, really bad moments. Would you want someone to judge you based on your worst ones? Would you want someone to holistically judge your character based on your worst moment that you experienced this last week? Whatever that might happen to be. The worst thing that you said, the worst way that you reacted. Would you want somebody to judge you that way? Well, if not, don't judge other people that way. You know, it's true that we don't get a second chance to make a first impression, but grace is always open to giving people a first chance to make a second impression. And so judging others comprehensively with a lack of grace is being judgmental. There's a fourth thing as well. Judgmentalism is when we're judging others harshly with a lack of love. And again, remember, these are all related and they all can happen simultaneously at the same time. But we do this harsh kind of judgment when we impugn the motives of others. When we think of others' motives as being as negative as possible, when we assume the worst of others rather than the best, and we put the worst possible spin on another person's words or another person's actions as possible. That's lacking love. Now, assuming the best doesn't mean that we have to assume that the other person or the other person's motives even, are good. Thinking the best doesn't mean that. Because sometimes it's not wise and sometimes it's not possible to conclude that someone else is good or their motives are good based on what you know about them and their circumstances. But it's based on what you know. But even then, we should aim to be as charitable as possible, to see other people and their motives in the best light possible. It just might be that it still is not very good Again, given what we know of the people and the circumstances. And we should also avoid harsh and unfair caricatures of other people, like this. And I've actually heard both of these. That if you voted for Donald Trump in either of the last two elections, you're a racist. And if you voted for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton in either of the last two elections, you are supportive of murdering babies. That is overly simplistic, that is unfair, it's harsh, it's unloving, and in the vast majority of instances, it's slanderous. Stop that. Stop doing that. We should not be following the ways of the world in formulating the worst possible version of someone's positions or the worst possible version of someone's words and then bashing them and attacking them based upon our misrepresentations. We as Christians should not be doing that. When it's more important for us to win arguments than it is for us to be loving people, we're missing something essential about what Jesus teaches. The most important thing is not winning an argument. It doesn't mean that the truth doesn't matter. It means how we engage in that matters. As Christians, we should be engaging with others with the aim to refine and move toward the truth, both them and us to be more refined and move toward the truth. And we should do that respectfully and caringly, not to insult, not to smear, and not to degrade another person. We shouldn't ever do that as Christians, be aiming to smear, insult, or degrade. Author Alan Jacobs is right when he says this, when people cease to be people because they are to us merely representatives or mouthpieces of positions we want to eradicate, then we, in our zeal to win, have sacrificed empathy, and that is a great price to pay for supposed victory in debate. Now listen, don't get me wrong, we can and we should at times vehemently disagree with others. But we should always do that, respectfully, in a civil manner, and as charitably as we possibly can. Excusing our judgmentalism as just righteous anger, or justifying it as our commitment to the truth, Truth that we're told we are to speak in love, by the way, to speak the truth in love, to excuse it and justify it in those ways is just not acceptable. There are people who need to hear the good news of the gospel, and they're not coming to the church because the church has a reputation for being judgmental. And sometimes the church has a reputation for being judgmental because people are confusing the meaning of being judgmental. And sometimes people have encountered other Christians who have been judgmental jerks to them. I know that's the case, because I've been one of them. That's not okay. That's not okay for me. That's not okay for you. So we need to confess the ways that we are guilty of committing the sin of being judgmental. But we also need to take the further step of combating the problem of being judgmental. How do we combat that? Well, after the command to judge judge not in verse 1, Jesus actually gives us directions in the following verses to combat the problem of being judgmental in verses 2 through 5. Consider this. He says in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, remember the reality of your judgment. Keep in mind that you are also a person under judgment. And so be careful how you judge others. Now it's difficult to discern if Jesus, what Jesus means by this is that we'll be judged by God with the judgment that we use and the measurements by which we measure, or whether others will judge us this way. We have ways of actually acknowledging that, that the way we judge comes back to us from others. It's in sayings like this: "If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword." Someone who lives in glass houses should be slow to throw stones. Because our judgments and our measurements have a tendency to come back upon us. But whether it's judged by God or judged by others, the reality of our own judgment should make us slow to be harshly critical of others, to adopt a negative critical spirit toward others, and it should make us quick to ask questions like those suggested by Christian author Matthew C. Mitchell recommends these excellent questions. How would you want others to judge you? With what standard would you want them to judge you? With what tone and with what attitude would you want to be judged? Those are important things to keep in mind. But second, remember the reasons for humility. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not take notice of the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Jesus is painting this almost comical picture of someone trying to address a speck in someone else's eye when there's a log or a plank in that person's eye. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that we should never, ever conclude that the problems and sin issues in someone else's life are never bigger and more serious than those in our life. That's not his point here, that ours is always a log, someone else's is always a speck. That doesn't eliminate the conclusion that we can, at times, need to draw that someone else's sin problems are bigger and more serious than the ones we're currently dealing with. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is saying, though, is that our own sin issues in our own hearts should loom larger in our eyes because they're closer to us. They're residing in our own hearts. And so it's an occasion for humility to recognize that we've got those issues in our own hearts. Consider that Paul could have been judgmental toward many believers to whom he ministered as an apostle in the various churches that he was serving. He could have been judgmental. But Paul regarded himself. Not others. He regarded himself as the chief of sinners. That's humility. He never lost sight of the issues he had to deal with himself. Dutch reformed uh, theologian Herman Boving from the late 1800s says it well. He says, All good enduring reformation begins with ourselves. And takes its starting point in one's own heart and life. And that's related to the third thing. Remember the requirements to love. Remember the requirements to love. Jesus instructs us about caring and loving well for others in verse 5. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, love will deal first with the self-righteousness, the ignorance, the harshness, the pride of our own hearts first, so that we can understand and deal more effectively and sensitively with the issues in someone else's life. Again, notice that Jesus is not telling us that we should never worry about the specks in someone else's eyes, the issues and the sins that they deal with. He isn't telling us that at all. He wants us to deal with those things, but he's calling us to judge ourselves first before we tend to the matter's that someone else is dealing with. He doesn't say that people don't have issues that need to be addressed and removed. But what he is saying is that love requires us to deal with our own hearts and examine our own issues first and more severely. And we often get this exactly reversed. To deal with our own issues first and more severely, we tend to deal with other people's issues first and more severely, while we tend to give ourselves a lot of gentleness, grace, and understanding. But when we're willing to deal with our own issues first and more severely, it allows us to extend that kind of gentleness, grace, and understanding to others so that we can more effectively care for them and love them. But it's hard to love people if, we're, if we've adopted a negative, critical attitude to them, if we're condemning them with attitudes of disgust. It's hard for us to do that. But there's a requirement to love. But the fourth thing is remember the rescue from condemnation. Remember your rescue from condemnation. We shouldn't judge others quickly because we rarely have all the information. In fact, we really never have all the information in which to ultimately judge someone else because we're not omniscient, we're not all-knowing. We'll never get to a point where we, with certainty, know the motives of another person's heart. We're not all-knowing, but God is all-knowing. God doesn't have to assume the worst about you or me. He already knows the worst about you and me. And yet, he does not condemn us. Instead, he moves toward us in humility, not self-righteousness. He moves toward us with patience and gentleness. He moves toward us not with a lack of grace, but full of grace. And he moves toward us not with harshness, but with love in order to save us and rescue us from condemnation. And this sacrament of the Lord's Supper testifies to the depths of that love and grace that he extends to us. That the one who had every right to ultimately judge us instead sent his son to bear that judgment for us and to stand condemned in our place, when he went to the cross and offered up his body to be crucified, which is represented by this bread. And where he poured out his blood, represented by this cup, in order that he might rescue us from condemnation. And you know, we're called to observe this sacrament of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. And it's by remembering our rescue from condemnation through his redemptive work that we find the power for combating the problem of judgmentalism in our hearts. It's by remembering what he has done for us where our critical, negative, judgmental hearts are transformed to be humble and gentle and patient and gracious and loving because of the same humility, gentleness, patience, grace, and love that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. Even as we remain firmly committed to the truth, our hearts can be transformed from judgmental to loving and gracious because of the love and grace that we've received.